Hello and welcome. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Andrew Rushby, and as always, I'm joined by Hannah Wakeford and Hugh Osborne. So welcome to the sixth year of Exocast. As we mentioned in our last episode, we're trying a slightly different format this year with two episodes per month. This will include either roundtable chat, as today, uh, with the three of us to discuss a pertinent question in exoplanetary science or a discussion with a pioneering exoplanetary scientist. And each month, of course, we will bring a handful of interesting new papers to discuss. So this month on Exocast 48B, we're finally going to be answering the question we posed in Exocast 46 way back in 2020. What is the point of the habitable zone? And we've actually been having a little bit of uh, discussion uh, offline before starting this recording as to how to begin this discussion. Right. So team, what does how does this make sense? How do we kick this off? Well, I think we should talk about what we see as the habitable zone and what the history of what the habitable zone actually means and then at some point we'll come to what the point of it is right so um so what to me the habitable zone is a a region around every star where if you placed an earth-like planet there um and with a long list of assumptions which we'll get into i assume um there might be water on the surface of that planet and therefore life could exist on the surface of that planet potentially right with a load of caveats right but that's kind of what the classical idea of a habitable zone is i think for me the habitable zone is is little more than a very poor naming choice it's defined from the broadest possible sense as you said as the area around a star in which water could exist on the surface of the earth the earth at what point and do we consider that the Earth might not be something particularly typical? And again, it comes back to some of the things that we've had throughout Exocast that Andrew's been teaching us this last six years about the definition of life and astrobiology and all of that so intrinsically linked together. The habitable zone is, a, in my opinion, a way oversimplification. So I think the first thing that we need to kind of look at is what are those simplifications and what do they mean for our understanding? So I think one thing we should go into is how the habitable zone was originally defined, right? So, Andrew, do you want to tell us a little bit about the history of the habitable zone? And from there, we can uh, talk about how it became defined and what its oversimplifications might be. Absolutely. And I think Hannah summed it up very well there. It's oversimplification of basically astrobiology. It, it, it summarizes pretty much everything, but all the way from planet formation to you know, intelligent civilizations. And that's why it is so difficult. But it's been something that's been clearly on our mind for, I don't know, hundreds of years, without a doubt. You know, are there other planets out there? And if those planets are out there, do they have life on them? Um, and we can go, well, it depends how, how broadly you want to define this, but arguably Christian Huygens uh, had an, an early concept of the habitable zone, noting that life, life generally needs liquid water. But then he, he incorrectly postulated that the properties of water would then change between the planets and that would would maybe affect things but certainly that idea of of there being intrinsic conditions that are required for life to exist on another environment 
have been you know something we've been thinking about for a long long time there was actually a really interesting well it was a very short uh, article by Ralph Lorenz actually I think uh, last year uh, a research note about a book published in 1913 called are the planets inhabited by EW Maunder who I admit I don't know that well um, but apparently they make a very good case that this might be the first time to actually use the phrase habitable zone and that um, short article was published in research notes of the AAS last year and I recognize I, I recommend checking it out because the figure from 1913 is actually it's really well done it's actually really good and obviously things have moved on a little bit since then but that might be the first first maybe modern conception of that of that thinking where um the the author compared earth and mars and looked at the different temperatures and how water might be stable so at least a century worth of, of thought about this. But I think it kind of maybe was popularized in, in 1964. There was a book called Habitable Planets for Man by Stephen Cole. Um, and, you know, there was a lot of sci-fi around that time was considering these things. Um, Isaac Asimov was, was considering, um, you know, these kind of concepts. But I guess the first, um, mathematical or climatic formulation of this to enter into the literature was probably from uh, James Casting uh, in 1990s. And, and by that, you mean this more modern definition where we say, if we move the earth through time and space, where is it? Where exactly. can you form liquid water on it? Is that this, this comes from this idea of the modern habitable zone really does come from the basis of these models where we've modeled the earth through various epochs, different parts of time. And we said, if we put the young earth this distance from the star, how, how long would that survive, water survive there? If we put the old cold earth there, how long would that survive? Is that really kind of where that comes from? Just the, yeah. the, the early 90s? Probably even even less than that, Hannah. Like it, it was just a modern, just, just modern amounts of CO2. So even considering the early earth, I mean... There, there was a corollary here that there was some evidence that Mars was clearly warm. Uh, there was liquid water geologically. We had geological evidence of liquid water on Mars, which wasn't really uh, fitting too well with our idea that, you know, the, the, the sun was probably 25% less luminous than it was, uh, you know, at that time. So there was some ideas about how... Um, how the atmosphere, how the climate was affecting this. And the model that was used in 1993 only had a very simplified Earth Earth atmosphere in there, not even Archean Earth uh, at that stage. So it was a one-bar nitrogen-based atmosphere with 300 parts per million CO2. So even less than we have now um, <laughs> with some parameterizations for albedo that if you work in climate science, you know how difficult it is to get that done and the clouds. Um, and there wasn't that much uh, in terms of the carbonate silicate cycle. So whilst it was modern, it was certainly... Uh, maybe not as far along as we are now, of course, but it was that first um, mathematical climatic formulation where we break up the atmosphere into certain boxes and see how you know energy and, and gases are moving between them and how that's going to affect habitability in the long run. But a, a lot of our listeners um, that are exoplanet scientists will probably recognise the habitable zone as we define it now from papers by Koparapu et al., mm -hmm. And, and those papers True. are based on these casting models still. Yes. They're, they're the same models that have been developed further. So what kind of developments have we seen that have changed how those models are used to define this habitable zone? Yeah, spot on, Hannah. It's the same group. It's the same group that's that's, that's doing it. James Casting is still in there. Um, and as you mentioned, Ravi Kapurapu had a paper in 2013, I want to say. So 20 years after that was originally published, and they extended that habitable zone. They still stuck with... Uh, the CO2 uh, as, as one of the primary greenhouse gases, but but varied it all the way up to eight bars. They also had um, uh, you know, better absorption coefficients, just incorporating what we know about atmospheres and how they work. But still, you know, it's still 
a relatively limited formulation, right? It's very difficult to do H2O and CO2 clouds properly, which is always difficult uh, in climate modeling. So that is a limitation. And again, it, we're looking at an Earth, an Earth-like planet, but that's not always the end of the story. People have been trying to extend the, the habitable zone to not have, you know, Earth-like atmospheres, even to extend them into free-floating planets, uh, which is something we can maybe talk about a little bit later. Um, but thinking about the habitable zone as being too limited, we aren't the first ones to say this, right? We aren't the first ones to think, hey, this is too limiting. This is clearly a, an issue that people have been looking at and trying to improve the habitable zone with different background gases, with different planet sizes, etc. But what we're realizing is that when you change one of those tuning knobs, that the results are very, very different. And it's it's the generalization of this that is supposed to be its strength, right? We can look at any star and say, bam, let's look for that star's habitable zone and see if there's planets in there. But the more and more additional parameters we incorporate, it might be somewhat more accurate for us, or we might feel it's more accurate, but it kind of reduces its generalism, if that makes sense. Okay, so let's break it down into the first order effects. What are those? Is it the temperature? Yes. Yeah, primary. Well, incoming, I guess, incoming energy at the, at the, at the very first, um, at the first step, right? I think it's remarkable that, well, w- the way I see the habitable zone is that there, there is this unescapable logic that um, planets too close to their star and too far from their star become uninhabitable. And I think, you know, you mentioned Huygens even, even came, came across this logic. Um, because as you get closer, the temperature, the surface temperature is going to increase. There's more luminosity coming from the star. And as you get further away, it's going to decrease. You know, um, we have icy moons around Jupiter at 5 AU, which if you move them to 0.5 AU, they would they would evaporate and become, you know, extremely hot balls of, of, of water vapor and gas. So um, somewhere in between those, there is a location which is um, best suited for rocky bodies to have life or maybe not life, but liquid water on the surface and i think that's everything after that point is just how complex can we twiddle these knobs and and have this modeling where we can figure out where the boundaries of those zones are um right but i do think that it is there is an inescapable logic to having a habitable zone as a concept because of this you know this goldilocks effect you know you're too hot too cold you there is always going to be if you're talking about wet moist life on the surface of a terrestrial body there's always going to be um a zone around a, around a star where it's going to be best suited um and i think you can we can go into the a bit of the complex complexity as to how the modeling's been done um but i think that's always going to exist regard, regardless of how you model a planet um so i think one of the key things at least in in casting in copper Apu's models is this feedback cycles right so this idea that an earth with water on the surface um, tends to maintain liquid water through various geological and atmospheric um, processes so do you, uh, this is this is exactly what you study right andrew so maybe you want to go into some of those feedback cycles and go into why um what, what constitutes the inner and outer edges of the habitable zone as we currently understand it Sure. So the the inner edge is primarily set by this water vapor feedback, as you mentioned, Hugh. Um, one of these feedback mechanisms that is postulated to be very powerful is if you have any water on the surface and water in your atmosphere, as you you know increase the temperature of your surface, more energy coming in, perhaps, or a more powerful greenhouse effect, then that results in more humidity uh, in the atmosphere, uh, which results in you know an increasing temperature, which results in more humidity, and so on and so forth. And at some point, you you get to the stage where there's so much energy coming in and being reflected around that there's not enough energy going out. 
uh, and you and you basically have a runaway steam atmosphere similar to what's happened to Venus. And on the other edge, on the outer cooler edge, depending on how you define your outer boundary, uh, can be either the point at which your greenhouse gas, be it CO2, be whatever it is, doesn't add an additional warming. So for example, on Earth, we often think about, you know, adding doubling CO2 will give us another three Kelvin of warming. But at some point that that response drops off, there's just either so much CO2 that the, the lines are saturated, or, you know, it's just so cold that adding, you know, an additional doubling of CO2 just doesn't give you any additional increase in temperature. So that's one of the limits. And there's also a limit where CO2 begins to condense out onto the surface, which is a very hard limit. But as you said, those are both set by feedback mechanisms. The CO2 feedback mechanism is the carbon and silicate cycle, which is a little complex and would probably require a whole episode. We have done whole episodes on that. Uh, but it basically maintains the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere as a balance with the with the weathering of the surface uh, materials. But, but of course, this is also in our feedback mechanisms that have to come into play, like the ice albedo feedback mechanism. So we also have to consider how much light is being reflected by this planet. And this can come from surface features such as ice, which is highly reflective, or clouds like we see on Venus, which are also highly reflective. The albedo of Venus is around 0.75, whereas the Earth's is around 0.3. And that's really the difference between how much light is reflected. So you can think of the the albedo as a percentage of the light being reflected, roughly 30% of the light versus 70% of the light. And that that difference will also change the way in which a planet reacts. So if you've got a very icy planet reflecting more light, this also has a very has a very well-defined set of tipping points that you can't reverse. And the Earth, amazingly, is sitting in an instability in those tipping points. It's sitting in the middle between going completely covered in ice and having no ice whatsoever. I think there's a maybe... It's, it's at an instability between glacial stages, but it's certainly not yet at an instability between crossing a boundary to leave the no, habitable zone. No, no, you're right. That's it's not crossing, it's not, not at an instability. It's not at a tipping point where once it crosses that boundary, it is on an exponential path to, to enter a yeah. solidly defined zone. What we're at is we're on the gradient of transitioning between those tipping points. And that's, that is unstable in the definition of that word. Yeah, you can have a stable positive feedback and an unstable runaway yeah. feedback. Um, so yes, that, that's very true. And I mean, these are the feedbacks that we know about that operate on the earth, right? We can't definitively say for sure that there aren't other feedback mechanisms that might be operating. There was one that was considered for a little while called CLAW, which I think has fallen out of favor a little bit. And that was to do with cloud condensation nuclei and how, you know, actual uh, either life or, or the ocean would result in there being uh, more clouds forming, which would then cool certain regions. And I think that's fallen out of favor a little bit. But there is still a sign that there might be other feedback mechanisms operating. And that's just on Earth. Who knows what those might be like uh, on another planet? Another reason why it's so difficult to incorporate this, when by the by definition, one of your boundaries is set by a feedback mechanism, <laughs> in a way, or at least regulated by. Um, and then when we start thinking about different planets or other planets, that that might be that might be a little tricky. Um, but I, I might just segue slightly here into uh, into our solar system and how our solar system helped us to set the boundaries, or at least shape our idea about the habitable zone and the conception of the habitable zone, right? Hannah's already kind of mentioned that uh, some of those boundaries, but one of the early boundaries that I touched on earlier was, well, early Mars had to be warm enough to have liquid water. And in many ways, a lot of the habitable zone 
investigations were like, how the, how can we make Mars warm enough, right? To have, to have liquid water. And that's still, still kind of, kind of going on. And then, of course, we can also look to Venus, almost exactly identical planet to us in terms of size, um, just much closer and arguably a, a kind of case for what the Earth could look like, uh, in maybe a hundred, couple of hundred million years if, if that, that, that water, uh, that runaway greenhouse, um, does take place. So in many ways, the investigation of our solar system has somewhat shaped our idea of the habitable zone. And I wonder if, if we had different planets, if, you know, if we didn't have the evidence from Mars, I know it's all very hypothetical. If we had a, uh, you know, a, uh, a super earth, for example, how that would change our idea about habitability overall. And of course, it's impossible to think about that now because we're, we're here and we're in this solar system and can't really change it. But I wonder how much of an effect that did have because we know now our solar system is a bit weird in that it doesn't really fit some of the other solar system uh, structures we found. So I wonder if that had some way in muddering our picture about habitability. Yeah. And of course, if, if we happen to be an intelligent species living under the ice of a, like icy moon out in the distant reaches of the solar system we would have a completely different idea of the habitable zone right we would think you'd need a uh, you'd need tidal heating obviously all life must must exist on tidal heating you'd never be close to a star i think ionizing radiation right you you fundamentally need that to make all your oxidizing (laughs) products no planet Um, could not have ionizing radiation to make oxidized products yeah exactly Um, so so that's totally right i mean we what we call the habitable zone is obviously biased by where we have where we know life exists which is you know the earth right but i don't think that's in itself um i i, I don't know i think i think that's a bias we have to live with in some ways um and i think that if we're going to know how to identify life it's going to be the, the life that is closest to the life we find on earth right um and certainly so well as i mentioned there like life under icy surfaces that's one place where you could have life perfectly you know happy outside of the habitable zone and there's actually quite a few other places that have been um you know suggested so we heard about venus venus's surface is obviously 900 kelvin and and completely inhospitable to any form of light that we could imagine but it's may its atmosphere up in the clouds maybe could have a layer which which as as andrew is about to discuss on the news in the next episode which could have life potentially leaving it and the same is true for gas giants gas giants because the heat increases with depth might have a layer in that atmosphere um where the temperature would allow liquid water droplets and potentially life Uh, even some brown dwarfs so these kind of failed stars could have a layer in their atmospheres which could potentially support life as as carl sagan proposed um and in fact you know another place that that where life could exist outside the habitable zone we've kind of proved by having humans put putting them inside metal cases and sending them <laughs> to to uh airless waterless bodies like the moon right so so clearly if you have a technological civilization you can break the habitable zone in that way um and you know even though i think it's ridiculous um life based out of something that's not the universe's favorite carbon water soup you know silicate life or i don't know uranium life whatever uh that could potentially live somewhere somewhere different even though for me that's extremely unlikely to exist um yeah i mean one of the things in terms of the the silicon based life i mean the reason why we propose this is because we see these trends in the periodic table we see these trends in in elements that suggest that they they can they act in very similar ways silicon 
in essence, acts in a similar way to carbon in that it can form four different distinct bonds to different Except elements. its oxide is sand. It's not a gas. And exactly. you can't really export And this is exactly what sand. I was going to say. <laughs> the problem is silicon, silicon oxides, and they make up a huge part of our planet. They make up a huge part of the interstellar medium. They make up massive gas clouds. Most of the dust that we see is these really nice, beautiful entocytes, phosphorites, silicon oxides. And those bonds aren't as strong as carbon bonds. They're not as stable over a vast range of temperatures. So silicon-based life is silicon-based life is very, very different if you put it in different environments. So they are, it depends on what you're talking about. You also, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, don't we need like soluble materials? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Having a soluble medium is, is, uh, is fundamentally important. <laughs> Which, I mean, li- there is liquid silicate based mediums. They're called lava, right? <laughs> <laughs> True. And what life yeah. have we found in lava? Yeah. Well, hey, I wouldn't rule it out. Tardigrades I, I, haven't even survived in lava, surely. Right, but tardigrades are carbon based. We're talking about silicon based stuff here. But yeah, I think it's, it, it, you know, this was a massive segue to say that, you know, <laughs> we don't think that that's probably likely to be life, but. Um, well, I mean, that's a similar to, that's a similar saying for, for us to say. So most of life on, on Earth, in fact, all life that we see on Earth is based on a, a specific chirality, a specific orientation of our carbon bonds. These are called left-handed and right-handed. And this is seen throughout our solar system. We are predominantly left-handed, not in writing, um, but in the way in which the bonds of our carbon atoms are orientated. And that is thought to be because certain light, circularly polarized light from the early forming star, destroys right-handed molecules. But actually what we've seen from other disks, what we've seen from other stars, is that you can circularly, I can't say that word, you can circularly polarize light in the different opposite direction. It's all about the spin. So if you you circularly polarize light in the opposite direction, you destroy a majority of left-handed molecules as well so the question I thought is, it was just because life had to pick one it well so no we we see that these things should be made in the same abundance there is no preference for the formation of left-handed or right-handed molecules but you can destroy left-handed or right-handed molecules with circularly polarized light and the spin of that polarization will destroy left-handed or right-handed molecules right but also life can't survive if it's like confused between both of them so life had to pick one Right, but you, what we see from evidence of observations is that a star, when it's forming, will produce either left-handed or right-handed circularly polarised light, so it will destroy one or the other. So you do, in a disk, where your planets are forming, end up with a dominance of one of those things. We happen to end up in a dominance of left-handed. But could life form in a dominance of right-handed? That is interesting, Hannah. I, I must admit, I was under the impression that it was kind of a one of those universal constants, right? Like you just assume, like, why would we the have chirality evidence. change? And we I, have I'm not evidence of discs like, and we have evidence yeah. that there is polarizing light that o- operates in the opposite mm. direction, essentially, and that this would then destroy these left-handed molecules. So it's a massive question. It's what this is showing us is there's still so much more that we don't know. Exactly. Or and, understand. And yet we all, we're trying to summarize this in a, in a simple one sentence conceptual framework that we can then apply to all stars which is which is why it's so difficult 
so so for me, I think well, there's a there's a few reasons why the habitable zone makes sense, and one of them is that you know it makes sense that we would um, develop a way of a test of you know could could you put a planet here and it, could it have liquid water and life on the surface um, based on the li- the only life that we have any evidence of, right? I don't think there's any point in us extending a habitable zone to include the life that we don't know exists or might potentially yeah. theoretically exist, right? Because at some point you might end up, you know having a habitable zone that includes every single piece of real estate in the universe that is between <laughs> certain temperatures, right? Um, or possibly between certain areas. You know, we could we could extend it to be like, oh, well, there's a giant Jupiter-sized planet out there, but the moons around it, if they existed, they possibly, if they were in the right orientation, could be... T- yeah, it could. you could go on and on. So so I, I think the simplicity of the habitable zone is kind of in its benefit in some ways. Um I also think, I mean, going like Earth life is also, even if we think that under the surface of icy moons, there could be, you know, habitable environments, but there's no way you could, with on exoplanets, test that, right? There's no way, really, you could take samples of the water underneath an exoplanetary icy body. Whereas I mean, you we're can struggling test... in our own solar system to well, do yeah, that exactly. on things yeah. next door. But whereas we can test the atmospheres and surfaces of exoplanets where the life is on the surface, right? Where the life is modifying the atmosphere, swimming in the oceans that are open to the atmosphere. Um, that's the kind of, not just because it's the life we understand, that's also the life that we're most likely to be able to identify, right? Um, so I feel like that's another argument why, okay, let's just stick, stick to rocky bodies. So is the purpose of the habitable zone to say that life is dominant? Because we've been talking about, and we talked about it on Exocast before, these these icy moons we've we've had episodes entirely dedicated to to the ice and the ocean worlds that might be on these these moons but that's not this that's not the kind of life that is trying to be defined by the habitable zone that is the habitable zone is defining dominance of life and dominance of life to the level that it affects the planet it directly has a feedback itself in existence is that right no i mean i i don't think the habitable zone has any has any link with whether life is dominant or not. The habitable zone is exclusively about liquid water, water. on surfaces of planets. It, it, there is no biological feedback, well, there's really. Liquid, there's liquid water out in these other places. Yeah, liquid so water, So that's the question. But we think, as we've just said, life like ourselves will not be there. Otherwise, they would have seen the fact that we threw a couple of spacecraft at them. You know... There has to be a line at which you're saying, no, actually, these, this life that we're talking about has had a dominant effect, surely. I mean, Otherwise, the habitable zone has no connection zone. with that as far as I'm concerned. It's it, it's mostly about liquid water on the surface of, of, of rocky bodies. Um, and it, So therefore, it comes back to the statement of it is misleading. Well, we could look at the Earth uh, as an example, the early Earth and the current Earth. So the Archean Earth arguably didn't fit your definition, Hannah, because it wasn't really being modified. There wasn't that co-evolution of life on the planet. No, no, that's what I'm saying. So what I'm saying is that the word habitable in this definition is misleading. That's all I'm trying to say. And I'm trying to pick apart the use of that word to define the presence of liquid water on the surface of a planet. And I don't understand why we don't use the word temperate to describe this, which does relate to 
a more generalised point of view, which is what we've just described, a temperate zone where water can exist on the surface is far more appropriate than saying a habitable zone when life, as you've just explained to me, has nothing to do with it. So, I mean, you, you, we could even go for the Eschel Watts zone, which I hear Jess, Jesse Christensen is already pushing for, which stands for Earth could have liquid water on the surface zone, right? Because that's exactly what the habitable zone is. And I think I agree with you that, that no, I mean... It's nothing wrong be- with the word temperate. Just-, just because it has the word habitable in it doesn't mean it reflects all habitability in the universe, right? I think the habitable zone as a concept... You know, okay, it it shouldn't be thought of as reflecting all places where habit there could be habitable environments, right? Yeah, right. That's what. <laughs> but I thought there was be there was going to be a but to the end of that sentence. No, no, I just. Uh... Um, then why are we arguing, Hugh? We agree. No, no, Get no, rid no. of the goddamn okay. name. <laughs> so I think a lot. So I think the habitable zone gets a lot of stick from astronomers, and I think often a lot of the stick that the the habitable zone gets from astronomers, I think, is because of a misinterpretation of the concept to assume that it claims and i think this is partly through the media is that any planet that's in the habitable zone is habitable right i think that's that's the jump which which is not at all in the in the spirit of the habitable zone concept right for me the I habitable zone i don't think zone... that you can blame the media for that solely i don't think that it's every single scientist that doesn't necessarily delve into that. The field of astrobiology is insanely new. And Habitable Zone, although we said, you know, this concept's come up time and time again, hundreds of years to the last couple of decades, there is no way you don't draw those links. And you can't tell me that every single astronomer, ask a cosmologist and what they think a Habitable Zone is. I think that that's misleading to say that it's the scientists versus the media. Because I think that it is us in defining that that has caused this. And I don't think that it's necessarily fair to put the blame on the way in which the media uses that word. No, because I think the way that scientists have defined it is extremely narrow, right? But we just learned that that happened in the 90s and that we redefined it and we we refined what it meant in 2013. Actually, there was a there was a we had a session at our 2016 conference about renaming the habitable zone, and I think yeah, liquid water habitable zone came out, or liquid yeah. water zone came out at the top, and I mean clearly that hasn't been adopted because I think there is some there is some you know lack of momentum with picking a new name. It does seem like well, pick whatever you know pet name you decided at that time um, was good, and I guess maybe there is just that lack of. The habitable zone as an as a name has momentum now and it has carry and i think a lot of us as hannah said are guilty of this that without a doubt you're more likely to get attention you're more likely to maybe even get funding if you're looking at habitable planets that's uh, they're popular unfortunately that's that's how it is there seems to be a a need to want to explore that maybe that comes down to some very thing very important fundamental thing inside us to look for other planets that might have life like ours but that we are as as guilty. I, I can't I can't blame uh, I can't blame the media on this uh, on this one. And I think that it's the co the co opting of that word means that the definition behind it might necessarily need to change to incorporate an essence of habitable nature rather than just yeah, water. My concern is that it has changed. Like we know a lot about this now. Even those that aren't necessarily in this field, I think people realize it's, it's, there is a weakness. The what, where the resistance to change is, is just the name. I, I, I think there was a statement in our script here somewhere that's just down to a misinterpretation of habitable. And I think that seems to be what we're, what we're kind of falling onto in that. Yeah. 
there has been repeated redefinitions of this of this concept, and yet we still keep calling it the HZ. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I feel like I don't, I don't. I feel like we as science communicators need to communicate better that it sure. doesn't mean that everything inside there is habitable, right? I think that's that's kind of on us in some ways. I don't think that changing the name is going to. I don't think we should get rid of the concept, right? I think that that's one thing that that some astronomers they don't like it because it. It's it's mis or maybe they don't like it because they think that it that it applies everything to habitability and it's become this like um, this bandwagon of, of jump yeah. jump on the bandwagon and get funding as as you mentioned Andrew therefore let's get rid of the whole concept whereas I think the concept is is extremely useful I think that that um, that we should be interested in Earth like mm-hmm. planets that might have liquid water on the surface if you find an Earth and it's not in the habitable zone, then the chance of it being able to have liquid water on the surface is basically zero, right? Yeah. The, in, the inverse isn't yeah. true, right? The inverse isn't true. If you find a habitable, uh, an Earth-like planet in the habitable zone, it's not necessarily likely to have water on the surface. Um, but the the you know the corollary is, is true, I think, and that that's what makes it useful, right? Yeah, and I, I, I don't agree. know if, if it... changing the name is or whatever is going to detra- change what the detractors say about the concept. Mm-hmm. But. Yeah, I think it's it's absolutely useful for that reason. In that it is an observationally, uh, you know, an, an observable feature of a star that could be incorporated in its other parameters, like what's the mass of the star, what's its radius, what's its luminosity, where is its defined term here, habitable zone, um, and it could be if it was just that, if it didn't have the same maybe power, the weight behind it that maybe we give it that the media then in, that picks up on, then maybe yeah, its importance would become and will become less it will be yeah. incorporated amongst the other properties of the planetary system and i think a lot of people working in habitability realize that we can't talk about generalizing planetary habitability because you need to know mm-hmm. about the individual planet itself but yeah. when it comes to observations and the usefulness of those observations and prioritizing for example that's a word that's often used isn't it let's prioritize mm-hmm. observations when they're in hc uh then there is i can't you know you can't deny the usefulness of, of that i think yeah, yeah, it's certainly useful in terms of the, the observation side of things. If we want to be looking for these worlds where we're looking for the presence or evidence of life, we need to narrow it down. We narrow it down first by its temperature. Is it in this nice region where water could exist on the surface? We then need to ask the question if it could have a surface at all. And this is where we've seen with a lot of the planets that have been discovered over 50% of the planets that have been discovered in their star's habitable zone, as we've defined it in this episode, are giant planets. They likely do not have a surface. So, you know, we've got one cutoff. That's the habitable zone. Next cutoff, we've got the size cutoff. And then we can start asking the questions. But you're right. This is where we look. They might have moons. It's yeah. one of these parameters. You f***er. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. That was really weird. Oh, yes, you did. Yes, you did. Of course, these giant planets could have moons, and that is always going to come back and bite us in no, the ass. No, but we don't know they have moons, and, and we should assume that they don't. We don't know that they have liquid water. We don't know that they have an atmosphere at all. There is so much we don't know. We need to deal with that. <laughs> that needs to be okay. <laughs> yeah, but when we don't know a lot, we we generalize. We stick to what we know, and we generalize, and we make simplistic predictions, right? And I feel like that's what the the habitable zone is doing. And as long as you know the assumptions that go into it, right, and you use it as alongside, you know, calculate is it tidally locked? 
Is it you know scarred by flares? Uh, what else is it, is it? Does it have a rocky surface? As long as you put all of these things together and you don't think of the habitable zone as like the be all and end all of habitability, everything inside it has has green men on the surface, right? As long as you use it in uh, in context, I think um, it's it's a useful system. Maybe maybe it's badly named, but I feel like it's not going to be changed. <laughs> yeah, and I I don't think it's going to be changed, and I think it is a useful system. Yeah. Um, but I will still disagree and use the word temperate whenever I can because sure. I think that. It's important to be visceral with our words. We get a feeling from words that we use. Words are hugely important. That's what changed us from people running around throwing rocks. We communicated with each other. And I think that the way in which we use those words is one of the most important things we have as science communicators. And habitable, whether you like it or not, scientifically... It also has a meaning in science and the general public that has connotations. And if you don't mean them in those connotations, stop using the damn word. Absolutely agreed. But I would just as a counterpoint, like to point you to our exocast cards, which are defined by Hannah, mm. cool planets as being anything less than 600 Kelvin. So again, we'd have to define That's temperate. Temperate for what type of planet? <laughs> temperate is, is below I would cool, like to obviously. say that that has changed over time <laughs> as we have incorporated more planets into the ExoCup that span a wider range. That's true. I mean, I'm just saying the, like, we'd the have to then The definitions that have been used are being redefined as science progresses. Oh, look at that. We did it. Let's see if we could do it with this. Yeah, and I mean, that's all we can ask for, really, is yeah. to update our definitions as as evidence becomes available. Yeah, and maybe <laughs> if we if we start, you know, if if we sample a hundred habitable zone planets and find no life, and we start finding life outside the habitable zone, then we throw it out completely, right? I think. But until then, I think it, you know, it's useful to, to figure out where we want to observe. <laughs> okay, so right. so in summary, thing, we solved nothing. <laughs> have we answered the question that Good we job. started with? Um, yes, I think we probably have. And I should say here, and maybe I should have mentioned this at the beginning of the episode, but if folks wanted to just hear like literal definition and a history of, we covered the habitable zone like in episode one of Exocast, like in a more general, less opinionated way. But I think in terms of answering, you know, the question, what is the point of the habitable zone? People might agree, d- agree or disagree with us, but we've had a go at it. I think that's all we can ask for. <laughs> think, Clearly, we're I not think... going to solve it here. I think we've done we've done what we can. And with that, I think it's time to uh, to close up the episode. Unless there's any final thoughts, think about the terms that you use in your paper from here on forward. Maybe don't use habitable <laughs> zone. Maybe try the temperate zone next time instead. Clearly, words have power, and we we are involved in the decision making process by every time we repeat that word. Even this episode is arguably making things worse <laughs> by having another discussion <laughs> oh, yeah. about the habitable zone. I think but, so. Yeah. But there we go. And not just your paper, your press release as well, because you have the power to change it. And I think that often goes further than the paper ever would. So and actually that's um, a good point, you know, speak with your press officers and, and iterate, you know, have drafts. Like don't just accept the first draft of the press release, right? Be fastidious about it. Be accurate about it. Um, most people should should know that, I guess. But I've fallen for that myself. And something's come out and I kind of regretted the way it was worded or would have worded it slightly differently. And uh, once it's out there in the ether, it's gone. You have no control over the direction it's going to take. So up to that point, you've got to make really, really be very, very careful with your words. And there might be an example in our next episode as to why you should be careful with your words. Yeah. 
Well, for now, thanks very much for listening to this episode. Uh, I hope it has probably muddied the water of what you think about the Habitable Zone more than you you realise. But um, good. Hopefully, we've we've educated you somewhat as well. So um, don't forget to look out for our other episode this month, in which we look through three papers over the past well the past six months worth of exciting exoplanetary news you can also get in touch with us and let us know your thoughts for this show and any other show uh, on at exo underscore cast on twitter and on our website exocast.org where you can also find all of the episodes as well as of course on itunes spotify and all good podcasting apps Uh, plus you can now buy uh, merchandise at our threadless store which is at exocast.threadless.com or if you just want to help us cover web server costs, you can contribute a few dollars at buymeacoffee.com slash exocast. But for now, thanks very much for listening. Till next time. Bye. 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 Exocast. I have exoplanets. This podcast was brought to you by the Exocast team. Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Hugh Osborne, the Test K-Ops Fellow at MIT and the University of Bern. And Andrew Rushby, a postdoctoral fellow in astronomy at the University of California, Irvine. Thanks for listening. Exocast.